Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. We have a great guest on today, Nathaniel Lackman. He is the ch- uh, chair of telemedicine and digital health industry team at Foley and Laudner, and he is also the board member at the American Telemedicine Association. Nate, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here, Tom. Post-Thanksgiving edition, I am very excited. Awesome, awesome. Thank, hey, Nate, thanks for uh, joining the program once again. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on in the industry. We're coming to a close in 2022, and uh, a lot of exciting things uh, anticipated for 2023. So uh, I just go. Uh, we'll start off on a on a lighter foot, if you will. Uh, you uh, the, the the Foley team had. Uh, written a uh, a summary of the 2023 proposed fee schedule that's been finalized now. Any particular surprises in the in the final version of that uh, of that fee schedule? Yeah, we did a review of it for the telemedicine and digital health uh, key issues, right? And we're actually going to we have the blogs and the final rule coming out this week. So by the time this launches for our listeners, uh, it'll already be online and available at our blog. Um, Usually we write them in like FAQ format. So it's really plain English, easy to understand and apply. And then we'll include hyperlinks to all the primary sources. So uh, you don't have to take my word for it, right? On the, the final rule on the telehealth coverage, I don't know if there were any major surprises uh, that differed from the proposed rule. The, the biggest changes that we're going to see uh, in Medicare telehealth in 2023 is going to a discontinuing coverage of telephone or audio E&M, as well as discontinuing the use of virtual direct supervision. There's some other things like postponing the effective date of the telemental health in-person six-month rule until 151 days after the PHE ends. They extended uh, a little bit of coverage, added 54 codes to the telehealth service lists that would be available during the rest of the PHE. But that's mostly the overall changes, and I'll I'll unpack them in 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 a bit. But one of the biggest interesting tenors is that CMS put out a Medicare telemedicine snapshot right about like uh, to kind of just gauge and there's slides about it too that they offer but they basically said that telehealth services for the medicare population increased more than 30x since the start of the phe and more than half of the medicare population has used a telehealth service um in the you know last few years so it absolutely has exploded in terms of exposure and use case and popularity Um, And because of that, CMS is fully aware that as the public health emergency waivers will continue to wind down and near their end, CMS is grappling with how do they maintain appropriate access to care without patients and uh, providers hitting the telehealth cliff, right? The telehealth cliff being an abrupt end to the waivers without a glide path or making certain of them permanent. And then we will see a constriction in patient access to care. Because keep in mind, we have a fundamental supply demand imbalance between patients who need care and 
in the United States and clinicians available to deliver it. We've used technology and virtual care as a means to load balance and further scale or leverage access to these doctors. But there's a finite return on that. And then if you throttle or remove one or two of these modalities, conduits through which the doctors deliver care via telemedicine, then access is going to you know, get uh, similarly throttled. I would agree. So uh, educate the uh, audience a little bit more on the timeline for the expiration of the um, public health emergency PHE. I believe it's January, end of January, but uh, there hasn't been uh, the 90 day notice given uh, just yet. That's right. The current expiration date is like mid-January. I think it's like the 11th or something of 2023. Um, even at the health conference, they had someone from HHS say, well, we haven't given our 60-day heads up. HHS promised that they would give folks at least 60 days advance notice before the PHE ends. So technically, they could do that any given day and say 60 days from now, um, right. it's over. However, if you follow the historical precedent of how they've dealt with it, they have done it in 90-day renewal cycles, right? So if they're following that same cadence, maybe you can anticipate another 90 days. I have not heard anything to suggest that the PHE will continue through 2024. I think it's a responsible or reasonably safe bet to uh, assume it will end in 2023. That being said, there may some of these uh, changes, which are temporary right now under waivers, may be made permanent before then. In addition, for Medicare coverage, a number of these CMS rules, even the waiver ones that are going to end, don't end immediately the same day that the PHE ends. So for example, I had mentioned um, how Medicare is no longer going to cover telephone, audio-only E&M services. Yet that coverage doesn't stop uh, December 31st of this year. It will continue on through through 151 days after the PHE ends, right? So okay. there's other services that will continue through the end of the calendar year in which the PHE ends. So by and large, I think we will, for the at least half, if not all of 2023, it's pretty safe to say that you're going to enjoy the similar Medicare coverage of telehealth services that you're enjoying now under waivers. You know, we talk a lot about telehealth, and I was excited to hear you mention the uh, the numbers and 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 its growth. But do you think that we narrow the the utilization of uh, digital health services uh, because telehealth sometimes gets viewed as video only, right? Video engagement or some uh, modality of that. But then you also have remote patient monitoring, which is, uh, has definitely been picking up steam, remote therapeutic monitoring, chronic care management, TCM, PCM, you, you know, the gamut. Do, do you think that we as an industry need to do a better job of calling out the differentiations of, of those modalities versus um, a telemedicine, telehealth aspect of it? I think there's a case that you could. Um, I think there's also a case that a rose by any other name will still smell as sweet, right? So whether we call it virtual care, telemedicine, telehealth, it's delivering care through technology where a doctor's located in one place and a patient's located in another. It's, I mean, it's that simple, right? Yeah. Now, healthcare and any bureaucracy, they get large enough, they love taxonomy. They need definitions. They like to put little pegs and little holes and <laughs> everything has its place. Uh, and part of the confusion 
that you had identified is that taxonomy. Medicare uses the term telehealth services, capital T, capital F, because that's what it was in the Social Security Act. And that means, audio, at least right now, audio video. Why? Because that's the definition in the Social Security Act. It also uses audio video as a substitute for the face-to-face -face element in the certain CPT codes, whereas face-to-face -face historically uh, would have been in person because how else are you gonna be face-to-face? -face? Now with these new technologies, you can accomplish face-to-face -face via video, but there's a whole separate cohort of uh, virtual services called non-face-to-face. And an example of that would be these audio-only telephone calls or the other ones you articulated, right? CCM, RPM, RTM. Those aren't subject to the rural restrictions or the other originating state stuff that Medicare telehealth is, and they're much more fluid. And then we're seeing CMS talk about creating new codes for even like just um, innovative software and digital health diagnoses type of tools. And then you have the really wide sandbox uh, where innovators can experiment for cash only, right? They're not subject to any of the restrictions uh, under payer rules or Medicare. All they're subject to is practice of medicine or technology, namely um, state medical boards and FDA rules if they're using devices. And that's where we're seeing some of the most wild, exciting stuff come. And that is where it should come. The innovation should come through the private market first. Then they kind of start to make some traction or make a use case. Then that justifies the creation of CPT codes as well as then coverage under Medicare. It would be more difficult to do the opposite. Create a code for a technology or service that doesn't even yet exist. How do you even how do you go about pricing that if it hasn't been used already in a cash only place? So I'm yeah, very impressed I, with the pace at which CMS has put out these innovations and changes. And I think the the terms, the definitions, the taxonomy, it's just something that goes along with uh, you know government fee for service payment. So a couple things there. So the one a couple things concern me. One is the you know with the public health emergency expiring sometime in calendar year 2023. Yeah, you know, the one thing uh, that impacts remote patient monitoring is the the copay rule, right? So right now nobody has a copay for remote patient monitoring because of the PHE. But obviously the the question is how does that now going back to a copay impact one adoption and two access uh, and you know three having a negative impact on the um, quality of care and, and outcomes. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, reintroduce. You don't need to be a lawyer or a doctor or a scientist to know that copays affect adoption or utilization. Yeah, the closer absolutely. you get to a copay zero, the higher the utilization is. That's what all the studies show. Why? People like stuff for free. <laughs> it's not complicated, right? That 20% copay for Medicare is baked into the system under the statutes. Why? Because they feel that Medicare beneficiaries should have some skin in the game, so they're they're making physically responsible choices about their care, right? And not just a blank check. Now, during the PHE, uh, we've had OAG waive um, its enforcement of these copay uh, provisions, and that has certainly allowed more adoption and uptick on these services like RPM and RTM and CCM. I think they will be the most susceptible to um, patients not deciding to continue them because they're monthly recurring, right? So it's like a, it would be like a utility uh, or a subscription service that the patient has to pay for every month, and they might not want to. The reality, exactly. though, the reality is 
already a large percentage, uh, although it's still like fewer than 50%, right? But there's um, a large percentage of patients, people who are on Medicare Advantage plans. They, by and large, would not have a copay for RPM services. Then you have the patients who are on traditional Medicare, but also have a Medicare secondary payer plan that they pay at like a premium and it covers all of their copays. So those folks will be unaffected. The only patient population we're talking about are the Medicare Part B patients who have chosen not to pay for uh, a supplemental plan, right? Are those maybe okay. the, and who aren't like Medi-Medi, aren't dual, dual eligibles, because in that case, then they wouldn't have a copay under the Medicaid side. So is that cohort? I haven't seen data, but maybe they're more wealthy, right? Uh, they say, you know what, I'll just pay it one off when I need it. I don't need to pay a premium to cover my copay spend. And maybe they would be more uh, comfortable and able to pay for the copay. So yes, you're certainly going to see a drop if they reinstitute uh, copay requirements. But I don't know yet. I haven't seen any studies to show that this will uh, affect all Medicare eligible patients in in such a scary way. You know, uh, I just want to revert back to one other comment that you made, and that is that you know the innovation should come from the outside, and I absolutely agree with you. Uh, however, uh, I have a, uh, a phrase that uh, nothing happens in healthcare unless there's a, a CPT code associated to it, right? So the mm -hmm. question is, how likely it, are doctors uh, willing to, and even consumers willing to, maybe more so from a consumer perspective, but how more likely is a doctor to embrace new technology into a practice and roll it out to uh, consumers without any CPT reimbursement? Thoughts on that? Right. I mean, if you're looking at it from a purely rational hedonist perspective, that the uh, treating physician is is primarily motivated for financial return, then none of them will do it. Right. But if you adopt the uh, mindset that many doctors uh, or clinicians in medicine are doing it for more than just like money, that they're not like an investment banker, then you're going to see that they want to experiment with new use cases to deliver care and better in different ways. Now, on a macro level, if there isn't reimbursement behind it, it just doesn't get traction, as you know. It's the healthcare, it's an industry, right? It's a service industry. I would say that uh, the AMA, they create the CPT codes, and they they have a, the Digital Medicine Payment Advisory Council. I know like I don't know, four or five of the people on that group. And they are, these are some visionary folks who really are trying to come up with codes to meet use cases that don't yet exist. Take RPM and RTM, both of those uh, code sets were created by the AMA's DEMPEG, and there were some devices and some use cases, but it's primarily limited to ACOs or value-based care. They totally unlocked that, and CCM, RPM became the first monthly recurring revenue models uh, for traditional Part B Medicare, which was historically all fee-for-service. That's like big deal. That is a big deal, and it came out through private industry, i.e. AMA, uh, before there was like, as opposed to just the feds or CMS creating these codes. CMS itself yeah, I, does create codes too, like G codes. Yeah, I'm a believer that, uh, you know, you can, a, a practitioner can change the face and how they deliver care simply by, a, and, be, and, and be perceived as being very innovative, simply by deploying these things that are already approved, right? Uh, not only telehealth, we, we know everybody's doing that, but Remote patient monitoring, therapeutic monitoring, chronic care management, TCM, uh, PCM. It, it really does allow you to enhance the delivery of care model that you have. 
increase your financial outcomes and and generate uh, a, a more engaged patient, which ultimately to me is the is what's necessary if you're going to move a patient from awareness to wellness, right? If you're going to change uh, outcomes, you need them engaged. Um, and uh, and and again, it just seems like a a perfect nexus of of things coming together on for physicians to really change the way in which they deliver deliver care. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right about that, um, particularly for like primary care, internal medicine. I have seen when we work with a whole bunch of RPM and uh, RTM and CCM uh, type of users. What I have seen recently is uh, a little bit of a pullback two ways. The RPM or uh, let's just pick. I don't need to use every acronym. <laughs> just the RPM is synonymous for it all. Right. The ones, uh, the companies who focus on B2B plays, right, being vendors to medical groups, the challenge there is if the business practices of the medical group aren't that great, like they have poor revenue cycle management, they're run like a mom and pop, then they become like essentially a bad customer simply because their operations are so poorly done that the vendors are not getting the same type of traction or growth that they need, right? If the medical practice doesn't collect from the patient, then they're not gonna have money to pay the vendor. And um, so what we're seeing are more RPM companies that have started out on a B2B play switch to direct to patient. They'll create their own affiliated medical group, they'll enroll in the Medicare program, they'll do all that billing and remote monitoring, et cetera, then they will push the data to the patient's PCP. The second way I've seen this, um, which is interesting, is manifest is some of the specialists, depending upon their specialty area, uh, decided not to go into RPM or CCM because what it did have is the net effect of reducing their reimburse their their revenues for fee for service payments of the in-person specialty specialist consults, which was the whole point, right? Oh. But um, this is what yeah. I'm hearing you know, word on the street is, well, okay, yes. Does it have more value? Is it less time for the patient? Is it less money for the program? Yes, yes, yes. But going back to your point about like maybe a rational hedonist doctor um, who's like, well, if I'm actually making less money by doing this RPM, I don't know if I want to do it, which is a sad truth, but that is some of the stuff that I'm starting to hear. Interesting. So uh, we have about 10 minutes left. There's two things, two more things I want to talk about. One is the health conference, which was uh, just before uh, Thanksgiving holiday. And the other one is the uh, American Telemedicine Association's uh, EDGE conference, which is coming up, I believe, later this week. So you you were at health. I was at health. Uh, Curious as to what you walked away with. Uh, What did you see? What was exciting? What you walk away with uh, relative to that conference? Well, um, I thought it was a blast. Uh, Foley, we are a sponsor of health. We've been a sponsor for years. I think this was my third or fourth health conference. I can't remember, maybe third. Um, There was, what, maybe over 10,000 people there. It was quite a buzz, and there were a lot of energy, uh, a lot of investors wanting to meet up with founders to continue to get new leads. Uh, It was curious. I thought it was neat that there were a number of founders and companies there who didn't need to raise capital. They'd already raised capital. Um, they were going to showcase some of the stuff, a lot of maintaining and enhancing relationships, folks coming out of uh, their COVID isolation and whatnot, wanting to see people in person. So there's a lot of camaraderie and, and, and whatnot. I think that a lot of the venture capital investors, they're, they have commitments from their LPs. Uh, I haven't heard from a bunch of them that said the LPs are refusing 
to pay when they do calls for capital, but they're trying to hold off on making these capital calls until there's more liquidity or uh, confidence in the capital markets, because that's how it works. But I did see, get the impression that a lot of the venture folks were pretty thirsty for deals because they need to keep proving themselves. And after some losses, you know, it sets out their whole portfolio. I also saw a lot of private equity folks there, which is interesting. And that seems to be more conducive to larger, more robust healthcare services organizations as opposed to like a pure software technology play. So there was a lot of that. Ultimately, it was like, I think a lot of good vibes, a lot of energy. My, on the investment side, my takeaway was don't expect a lot of, there will be some investments, but don't expect a ton of uh, investment activity in 2023 until maybe the tail end. We could see 2024 a lot more. Keep in mind, these funds already raised capital commitments from their LPs and investors in 2020, 2021. And so they might not actually be sitting on the cash because they haven't done the call, but they have plenty of dry powder. I think it uh, is to the benefit of the investors to wait a little bit for valuations to calm down, um, sort of like deflate that yeah. market, and then they'll yeah. deploy their capital, they'll get more return. I would agree. Would you say that uh, there's a, a large push between now and mid-23 relative to the investments that were made to actually produce um, a um, some results before uh, more money is uh, uh, brought into the market? What are your thoughts on that? Maybe, maybe. Now, keep in mind, like the last several years have been all growth for these. So, and that's that's that was the business plan. That was a strategic uh, imperative from the investors as well. We're giving you this money. We want to use it for growth. We don't care about profitability. We expect you to be profitable in the future. We'll figure that uh, out then. Right now, it's gaining market share. And very quickly, it whiplashed to, oh, you know what? You're not going to be able to get another raise uh, 12 months after you close this raise. And what does that mean? It means you need to be a better steward of your burn rate to maximize your runway. So yes, there's rifts and like layoffs or whatnot so that the burn rate is lower and these companies can last longer. That does not necessarily mean that they will have a shorter term track to profitability. It just means that their spend will be at a slower pace. Obviously, some of them are already profitable now and that's great. But I still think in venture, you anticipate an 80 to 90% failure rate. That's like baked into the thesis. And so you need to shoot shots that are going to go really big, right? Make the world a new and different, better place. And that's totally fine. So I think that what we're going to see is just a cooling off on the engines. That's good for e-commerce direct-to-patient companies because the CAC, the customer acquisition costs, should go down. Less bids on um, social media for ad space and pop-ups and all of that stuff. Everything became more expensive when more capital was pushed into these companies because they had more money to burn and uh, using what do they call that like a market based pricing the how online ads are it really just made everything more expensive. So the yeah. net beneficiaries were the social media platforms or search engines who sold ad spend, but it wasn't the patients it wasn't the the providers or the entrepreneurs nor was it the investors. I'm hoping Let's that see. we see a little bit of simmering down and we'll you know we'll we'll, we'll see continued growth. Awesome. Uh, and so the last uh, point is the Edge Conference um, coming up, I believe, later this week. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that conference and uh, what your expectations might be. 
Yeah, so ATA EDGE is the uh, American Telemedicine Association's annual policy, uh, legal and policy conference. It's three days in Washington, D.C. every year. Um, I've been going since it was created, and I think it's absolutely outstanding. So there's a, um, it always has a bunch of uh, elected officials and politicians, senators or congresspersons. You'll have uh, folks from administrative agencies. I know some uh, lawyers from the FTC will be there, from HHS OIG will be there, maybe somebody from CMS. Uh, and uh, it's usually 300, 400 people, so it's a very intimate forum where government affairs, lawyers, CEO executives interested in law and policy of telemedicine just get to talk shop. Uh, so it's usually some networking and late night over drinks and you know appetizers where you're really just trading a lot of information and um, what's coming around the pike. I can't think of a bet more valuable like three days spent if you're in that space of digital health law and policy, whether you're a lobbyist or a lawyer in-house or outside counsel, if this is what you care about, look, being able to peek around the corner, it's an excellent forum for it. Do you expect anything to uh, come out of the uh, the new Congress in a collaborative uh, Washington um, effort uh, relative to uh, uh, enhancing digital health in 23? Ooh, well, let's see. Ex expectation versus hope are two di <laughs> two different things. <laughs> so I true. am an I am an optimistic guy, so I do hope uh, and expect. Uh, I expect because I'm a taxpayer and who votes for these folks, and I expect them to Amen. do their job. I think if I had to make a, pre I know you're making asking me to make a prediction now, Tom. So no, no, not at all. No, I just you, you listen. You're you have your your uh, fingers on the pulse, uh, and uh, just curious as to what. You know, you might see from your perspective, your vantage point, what might happen in uh, with in Washington. Yeah. So what I think, I think there there is a chance to have Medicare change to eliminate the originating site and rural restrictions for telehealth services um, before the PHE ends or some sort of uh, transition period. I think that's there's a good chance of that. I don't. I'm not holding my breath that there will be a national medical license or anything that would preempt state licensure rules because there's a the Tenth Amendment and states' rights under federalism. I really would. Ex I expect that uh, the DEA and, and maybe in cohort connection with SAMHSA or the White House will put out some uh, rules or or whatnot that would allow uh, telemedicine prescribing of controlled substances to continue, particularly for SUD and OUD treatment. That may come in the form of a separate public health emergency specific for the opioid uh, crisis, or it will come out in a special rule for those type of uh, treatment providers. I would hope and uh, anticipate that DEA will also do its job to publish the special registration for telemedicine, which would apply to a broader variety of specialties and clinical types, allowing them to prescribe tel uh, controlled substances via telemedicine in clinically appropriate manners. Those are probably some of the major ones that we're seeing out there uh, on the federal side. And what I would hope, uh, if we did this uh, interview this time a year from now, we would be like, hey, all of that has been solved and done and the world's a better place. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, let's hope uh, the end of 2023 does produce a, a world where it is a better place. So with that, uh, I I want uh, I need to end it uh, here. Nate, uh, you are a, an awesome guest and very insightful person. Want to thank you for your uh, for your time participating in the program. Tom, it's always a pleasure, and 
if any of the listeners uh, want to check out the detailed FAQs on uh, the Medicare telehealth rules or whatnot, you can go to our blog, healthcarelawtoday.com. Awesome. Nate, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Have a great day. I want to thank the show's sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Ship. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next show.